Welcome to Seeds, a show where we talk about purpose with inspiring people making a positive impact with their lives. We are particularly interested in social enterprises and entrepreneurs. We will listen to them reflect on their journeys and take time to dig deeper in order to better understand what really motivates their choices. Hey everyone, welcome along to the show. I'm glad you could join me as today we get the chance to speak with Ian Kennedy. Now Ian has had an unusual career because he used to be the ambassador of New Zealand to Japan. So because I'd never spoken with an ambassador before, I was really interested to hear about his life and what leads someone to become an ambassador. So we find out all about that, as well as his love of Japan, which is something that I share with him since I lived there for five years. If you enjoy this episode, then you might enjoy the earlier little bonus episode I put out recently about doing business in Japan and Japanese decision-making. And if you find the content on Seeds is helpful, then consider sharing it with a friend. It's likely that if you enjoy it, that they will too, and they might even thank you for alerting them to a new podcast. Also, it's really appreciated to receive notes and encouragement and little posts about it on social media. I read everything, and it definitely helps me keep going with this endeavor. We're up to more than 100 episodes now, so there's a lot of content in the back catalog. Now let's get into this interview with Ian. All right, so it's a pleasure to welcome Ian Kennedy, who's a special representative, Japan. Thank you for joining me on uh, the podcast. Pleasure to be here. Um, it's great to have you here. And um, as you know, I lived in Japan, so I love this. I already know that our conversation is going to be great uh-huh. because um, you've lived in Japan and I've lived there. And I know we, we both share a love of Japan. Yes. Um, but before we talk about your experiences there, I'd love to just rewind to the beginning of your life and right. learn a little bit about where you're from. Okay. Okay. Well, um, I was born in Wellington. Um, my father was a, in, uh, in insurance, mm-hmm. and uh, when I was two years old, he got uh, transferred to Hamilton. So um, my early years were all Hamilton, uh, primary school, se- secondary school. Um, so you didn't so have any memories of Wellington then? No memories all, at all. Yeah, yeah. No. I kn- well, one memory is um, of planting some acorn seeds uh, in the vegetable garden, and we thought this would be hilarious when these trees would shoot up and sort of destroy the cabbages. That that was <laughs> that was my only memory of Wellington. Right. Um, no, so uh, that's interesting because you left at age two or so. Yes, like, that's pretty early. <laughs> yes, <laughs> that and uh, I, I I sort of have a memory in the back of my mind. Um, my brother, two years older, mm-hmm. had a um, uh, what do you call it? And uh, not, not a tricycle. It was a little, like a little imitation fire engine. And apparently, we went down the very steep path at the rate of knots. Right. Um, Wellington's that, good for that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that's mm-hmm. a vague memory. Yeah. Um, but uh, so, what were you like, or what did you enjoy growing up? You know, sort of take us through your primary years and you know early childhood. Did you enjoy outdoors reading or? Yeah, uh, I just played sport. Okay. Uh, I didn't really do anything else besides that. And uh, uh, in fact, one of my memories from uh, secondary school, uh, my, one of my, our teachers, uh, Mike Minogue, who um, was mayor of Hamilton at one stage and also um, a na- National Party MP. But he was our school teacher uh, when we were there and he was a good teacher. Um, he um, encouraged us to uh, think about what's going on around us, very good. But um, I think he was very disappointed with our results. And uh, I remember him coming into the class at one stage and he said, um, 
the top mark in the test was 55%. Um, and he said, I'm seriously worried, and this was the height of sarcasm, I'm seriously worried that you guys are working too hard. Uh, and, and I remember thinking, oh, okay, uh, that, that sounds right. So um, my, my um, uh, aim at school was 50%. Um, and I didn't aim any higher than that in the classroom. If that got me through, that would be good. And... Um, and I just played uh, a lot of sport and uh, mm -hmm. uh, I was actually in representative teams for about five sports at school. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's what I did. Mm -hmm. And so. So, where uh, did that come from, that focus on sports? Was it part of your family? You uh, know, like did your father encourage it, your mother encourage it, or was it just something that you just loved sport? Yeah, I just love sport. Mm -hmm. I and mean, uh, my parents were not particularly sporty. I and mean, my mother played a bit of golf. Um, my father used to like to go along to the football with his with his mates um but th that was um not a every weekend occurrence um i remember he went to the 1956 springboks waikato game with don clark and all the other clark brothers playing there and i think at that stage it was about 1956 so it would be dollars i guess would it no it didn't be Still pounds. Mm. Anyway, um, but he thought um, the price of a ticket to the rugby, even at that stage, was uh, a major expenditure. Mm. But I remember he used to always listen to the cricket when he was in the garden, that sort of thing, or mm -hmm. the football. So um, uh, interest in sport. But no, I just think they, um, it was post-war, and I think um, that generation of adults had been through a hard time, and so they were just looking for some normality um, mm -hmm. in their lives and um, trying to um, ensure that their children grew up sort of happy and healthy and mm. uh, so long as that was the case um, uh, and in those days um, it wasn't perhaps so competitive to get a job as it was as it is now mm -hmm. um, so uh, none of my um, father's uh, brothers uh, went to university but perhaps that was a war thing but mm -hmm. I mean going to university wasn't really um, a big thing in, in, in those days. Um, and so I, I didn't really aim for university at all, mm. quite honestly. So when you're in your high school years that you're describing, what sort of era are we talking about? Uh, high school was 63 to 67. Yeah. Yeah, so a long time ago. Yeah, yeah. Long time but it's ago. interesting to me to talk, you know, because obviously I wasn't around then, <laughs> but just to think about New Zealand at that time, yeah. and particularly given your career, which has seen you moving to Asia, yes. you know, what what was your, I guess, what was it like for you growing up in high school? Because I imagine there weren't many, you know, foreign exchange students no. coming in or anything. It, no. It, what, what was it like? Uh, for me, um, the world sort of, uh, stopped and started in the Waikato region. Mm -hmm. I, I didn't really look beyond that. I mean, I did study um, French and Latin at school, but um, uh, there was never any um, opportunity to actually speak it. Um, so we would, uh, for French, we would try to write some little composition that went to about five lines, something like that. Um, and I, I just couldn't see the point of it, quite mm. honestly. So um, uh, uh, sort of foreign horizons didn't really come into my thinking at all mm. at the, at those years, uh, except when, you know, they had the South African uh, rugby team or cricket team coming. There was, it was that sort of sports association right. with overseas. Um, I guess my parents' generation 
still thought of uh, UK as home. Mm-hmm. Um, Had they come from the UK? No, or they no, were no, no. My uh, great great grandparents um, came to New Zealand, so they they were second third generation. Yeah, but um, there was still that association back, wasn't there? Yeah, yeah. absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Oh, so uh, things were different. I mean, growing up in Hamilton, if I go back there now, it's all uh, residential, but. When we were living there, there was uh, there were cows in the backyard and an orchard next door, and mm-hmm. um, I you know I I walked to school about two miles there and back each day. Mm-hmm. I remember um, you know thinking it was good to break the ice bare feet going to school, and um, so it was it was a different New Zealand than mm-hmm. uh, we've got today, where I mean, lots of children these days are dropped off by their parents by car because mm-hmm. either they're worried about the traffic or security or whatever but mm-hmm. I mean um, uh, it was um, it was a different New Zealand I remember um, walking about um, three quarters of a mile to the first house in the neighborhood that had TV right uh, so we could watch black and white TV yeah um, so what was that like oh well, that do you was, remember the emotions I mean like, yeah well it's, I thought it was pretty cool yeah you know? <laughs> I mean, this sort of uh, very modern uh, dimension to to living um, none of the gadgets that you have in homes these days I mean we had a, a fridge a toaster and a washing machine that was the ex- oh on a radio um, that was the extent of the gadgetry mm-hmm. um, at home mm-hmm. uh, so uh, there was a lot I, I don't know. I, um, I think there was more um, uh, focus on making your own fun. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was simple fun, but it was, um, um, yeah, and family unit was really important. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and in those days, uh, I remember it used to annoy my mother in a way that if she went to go and hang out the washing, um, the neighbors would wave out to say hello. Uh, I think we've gone too much in the other direction these days where maybe neighbors don't even say hello to each other right yeah uh, but it was it there was i guess post-war there was um uh sort of uh community building atmosphere yeah yeah the amazing thing is that we're not talking about that long ago no. <laughs> you know no. when you think about thousands of years in human history and things the transformation from your childhood you know through the early you know 1950s 1960s mm. to today that's that's really close yeah and yet you're describing a world which for my children you know who are so used to ipads and yeah and different things um it's just a completely different place yeah well i think i'm right in saying that i didn't get into an airplane until i was 20 right yeah yeah Um, well that's it's fascinating to me because i know your career and your life has taken you overseas so Mm. i'd love to unpack sort of how you got into that (laughs) area like um so you finish up high school and you didn't have ambitions to study no so what what happened next well i i just didn't know what to do Mm. um so um all my friends were going to university so um and i'd never been to the south island so i thought um i structured i didn't have a bursary because i i I didn't do any study for anything like that um so you want to get the 50 percent (laughs) right so um i didn't even do that i mean i i um, when uh, the bursary exams were on, I w- went and got a job at um, Hutton's um, Small Goods, and I sort of figured I could make more money anyway in three day- in the three weeks we had off for study. I could get more money from Hutton's than I could from a bursary. Um, so that's what I did. So I had no bursary. Um, and uh, I structured my course to do maths and history. 
uh, because I didn't want to go to Waikato, which was just opening at that stage. Mm. And um, I thought Canterbury sounded pretty cool, and um, it was South Island. And if I did history and maths, that was possible at Canterbury, so that's why I went to Canterbury. So right. it doesn't there's, it doesn't make a lot of sense, um, uh, but that's how it was. Yeah. Well, it's often in life you look back and then you see the way that the path has gone. And yeah. 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 Oh, that's good. So you, you ended up here in Canterbury, studied those and graduated in those degrees? Uh, yeah, there was sort of a transition in those years because um, in my second year at Canterbury, uh, playing cricket, I damaged my knee uh, oh. pretty badly. Um, yeah. And uh, so I wasn't able to play sport for a year. So. I had nothing to do in the weekend, and so suddenly I got very different marks right. um, at university. <laughs> um, and suddenly for, I'm not quite sure why, but it just like a switch went on when it came to mathematics that um, virtually with um, minimal preparation, I could figure out how to do something in mm. maths, how to, to get the answer. Whereas um, my choice before that had been geography, history, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm required a lot of um, memorization, study, whatever. But I found that um, uh, actually mathematics really appealed to me. Mm -hmm. And I guess if you start to succeed at something, um, uh, it becomes fun. Mm. Um, whereas history was always a struggle, but mm. uh, a very erratic struggle. I, I, I mean, in my, in my history, I, I sort of wavered between an E for one exam and an A plus for the next. Right. Um, <laughs> so I, not, I still don't know what I did differently. Um, yeah. um, and uh, geography, I remember spending hours and hours to do um, uh, a map, mm. which I thought I did well, but again, I sort of got a bare pass mark for it, mm. whereas maths, I could just get uh, a really good mark. Yeah, and it's interesting because I interviewed someone named Lauren Burr, who's a friend of mine, who's mm. a teacher in Wellington, yep. a maths teacher. Yes. And we talked about mathematics, and she described it using the word fun, yes. just the same that you just described it. Yeah. And she said to her, it just makes sense. It's yeah. the patterns that come together. And uh, basically, she was saying all of life is ultimately based on maths. Right. Everything, you know, that it there's all binary numbers and everywhere you look there's patterns yeah well, i certainly believe that i yeah. mean i think um newton's law um is not just for physics i mm. think it's for human life i think to every action there's a uh inversely proportional reaction mm. um and um maths is very logical mm. um and i guess my, my 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 way of thinking is is quite logical mm -hmm. um so um, anyway, I, I managed to uh, get a reasonable degree in, in maths, mm -hmm. and um, I was on a I was actually on a studentship um, at at university. So the next year was spent at um, Christchurch Teachers College, ah. and I mean that was a disaster. I know. Oh really? I looked, <laughs> <laughs> I looked about sixteen years old trying to teach eighteen year olds, and uh, it was never going to work. And so uh, I had to think. What do I do? And uh, fortunately, um, there was an opening at um, Canterbury University. If you had a, a bachelor's degree in maths, um, you could go straight into economics three and then to a master's degree. And so that was my um, uh, escape clause, basically. Right. So um, again, I, I did that without any uh, in purpose in mind. It was sort of like... Um, how do I catch my breath after this um, 
disaster trying to be a teacher. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was, and fortunately, I was um, uh, I was private boarding and um, boarding with a, a family whose uh, the, the father had um, just passed away. So they wanted um, just a male in the house just for a bit of um, company and security and so on. But um, they were a major influence on 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 my life, mm. particularly. Uh, for somebody who from school had not come away with great confidence in um, uh, academic ability. I mean, I'd pretty much pocketed myself as as sport and I had a very nice group of friends and Mm. that was where I saw myself. I didn't see myself in any sort of academic role, really. I Mm. wasn't wasn't where I... So um, that family... um, uh, gave me a great deal of confidence in my own ability mm. um, in that sort of more academic area. And um, so, how what, did they do that, or what was it that, uh, that helped? Just uh, for the listeners to learn from, <laughs> it, you know, it's, it was um, um, endless conversations over dinner and after dinner, mm-hmm. doing the dishes, and um, yeah, and um, sort of things where I think maybe these days uh, families are locked in front of the television or locked in front of, um, uh, you know, sort of electronic gadgetry. Mm. Um, and it was just uh, exploring ideas. And um, uh, for me, very fundamentally, it was um, Christian um, uh, faith. Uh, there was very strong um, uh, Christian family. Mm-hmm. Um, and so... It was uh, quite a journey through that sort of, um, you know, what does Christianity really mean and how does it impact on my life and um, how everybody is uh, important in their own uh, right Um, and with uh, individual um, abilities and attributes and there'll never be another person like me. I mean, that sounds a little bit... um, egotistical but it's not meant that way there'll never be another person like you either Mm -hmm. so in that sense everybody is special with Mm -hmm. something to contribute and I think if you start to um, have that feeling of your own self-worth then it's very much easier to appreciate the contributions that others make as well Mm. and that starts to be very healthy Mm. Um, and uh, one of the daughters in that family uh, married to um, uh, a person who was working in foreign affairs and I had sort of vaguely, very vaguely sort of thought maybe Treasury or maybe Reserve Bank but he said to me um, foreign affairs is also interested in uh, economists so, hmm. um, you know, why don't you apply? Um, yeah. So I did and, um, I mean, it was not a startling interview. When Looking back, it was a pretty mundane interview but... Um, uh, they accepted me, yeah. and so there it was. Yeah. So let's talk about that. But before we do that, just I'm always curious about people's lives, the inflection points or the the points that things change. So mm-hmm. just picking up what you said, it's you said you hurt your knee, yes, which meant that you couldn't, because your identity up until that time had been about sport, yes. right? And yes. so it was the injury to the knee, and then you said you went to teachers' college, and yes. it was a failure or yeah. a. Yeah. I just find it fascinating that those two events happened. And then you mentioned, you know, because those are bad things, yeah, right? Yeah. That probably only at the time they it would have been disaster. But looking back, you can see how it kind of shapes you and, yeah, and moves you. And then also the family. You mentioned that their father had just passed away, right? Yeah, yes. So they're going through huge turmoil and trauma. Yes. And yet also reaching out to you to yeah. 
talk with you and and things uh, how did that work from their point of view i guess so was it just a natural outworking of who they were it sounds like yeah um well i um the mother mm-hmm. uh was one of the first social workers to be attached to a medical practice um, in Christchurch. Right. Um, so uh, she um, uh, was a remarkable person and um, very uh, committed to helping people to reach their potential. Mm. Um, so I think I was just very lucky to mm. be um, uh, hosted in that family. Mm. Uh, and then I grew up with uh, one brother, mm-hmm. uh, so there's two and two children in our family. In the family, I was staying two daughters, so I, I sort of got two sis- two sisters in the process mm. as well, and that was a, another rounding mm. aspect to me. Um, so um, uh, I think that's what university should be. Um, yes, it should be um, a chance to. Um, further your knowledge, but it should be a chance also just to so f- mm, figure figure out who you are yourself. Mm. Um, so um, I'm not I, I'm I'm not so convinced that um, you know the sort of um, thought these days that you should figure out your career from an early stage and specialize uh, is necessarily the right track. I mean, it's mm. interesting. I was reading an article the other day that. Um, compared Tiger Woods and Roger Federer, where Tiger Woods grew up with a father who pretty much took him from the cot and put a golf club in his hands right. and yeah. said, you will win the British Open, etc., etc., mm. to Roger Federer, who um, grew up um, with uh, parents who I think I'm right in saying very talented sports people, um, but... Um, wanted this son to grow up um, uh, open to as many possibilities as possible to find out just where his uh, true uh, abilities lay. And I think I'm right in saying that he didn't really start to play tennis seriously till he was about 19. Mm. Uh, so two very different careers, one specializing right from the start, one um, taking time to sort of figure out who you are as a person, mm. Um, and, and then finding your specialty after that. Mm. So I don't think there's any blueprint that's absolutely the right way. Yeah. Um, probably every child is different. Yeah. Uh, well, they are all different. Um, but uh, I think I was very much in that. I, I shouldn't compare myself to Roger Federer. That's <laughs> the height of egotism. <laughs> but um, I think I just was given time. Mm-hmm. And um, fortunately, um, I I always think sort of by the grace of God, I was led to the right people who could give me a nudge in the right direction at mm. the right time. Mm. No, that's really good. And yeah, I, I agree with you. I think too often we push young people into decide on your career when you're 17 or 18 or whatever. Yes. And actually it does take time to work out where you fit in the world and, yeah. and what what resonates with you. Yes. Um, yeah. But the other thing I pick up on, that family, and it sounds like they became a second family to you. Uh, you know, yeah. they, Absolutely. they became your sisters. And, yes. Um, the, the question I have for, this is asking my own self this question, yes. so it's not just how am I playing a role like that for other people? You know, um, how can I have a role to play in a 21-year-old or a 22-year-old who's not sure where they're going and and, um, think about that woman and the influence she had on your life? Yes. 
what is it? How can we each leave a legacy like yeah. like she did, huh. um, which lasts? You know, that's that's stewardship of of relationship and yes. going beyond. Yeah. So, yeah, it's really interesting. It's good good to hear. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yeah. also the fact that they were willing to be so pouring out into you despite having gone through a loss like what they had gone through. It's yeah, yeah. Quite something. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So we've we've already established that you grew up in Hamilton yeah. <laughs> and then coming to the South Island is mm. quite a big thing. Mm. All of a sudden you're now in the foreign affairs. Yes. So <laughs> tell us about that, I guess the mind shift uh, that happened and and what what comes first when you do join the foreign affairs? Like is there induction training or you how do you how yeah. does that work? I, I just don't Look, know. Look, I think it's I think it's more formal these days. Um, for me, uh, the um, interview process what, what was an interview um, I don't recall doing a psych- psychological test. I think they do do a psychological test these mm. days. Mm-hmm. Um, but for me, it was the interview, and um, I, I wasn't very impressive. I mean, I was, I was asked an open-ended question: um, "So you're interested in foreign affairs?" And I responded, "Yes, I'm interested." Mm. <laughs> so I think they fig- they figured out quickly um, um, how can we sort of engage with this person and. Fortunately for me, one of the uh, people on the selection panel was a keen golfer, and he said to me, we hear you play a bit of golf. And then I could talk for about 30 minutes about golf. So (laughs) golf actually got me into foreign affairs, and the person who interviewed me, uh, Rod Miller, um, was uh, uh, New Zealand foreign affairs' first Japanese speaker. Hmm. Um, And uh, so when I was posted to Japan for the first time, Rod Miller was again there uh, in, in Tokyo as ambassador. So, I mean, uh, right through my life, there's always been somebody there mm. um, um, that um, has sort of lent a helping hand. Mm. Um, like a mentor figure. To yeah. yeah, yes, yes. Mm. But, I mean, it's interesting the question you pose. I mean, nowadays, maybe the baton has passed to me and I need to be sort of looking, you know, more mm. to ways that I can sort of play that sort of role mm. with uh, uh, you know younger people I think it's always good to think about I mean I, I think about it as well yeah. how do you proactively yeah. reach out to people and, yeah. Yeah. and particularly these days I think post the shootings that happened here in Christchurch yeah. in March Absolutely. there's a lot of communities out there that I frankly don't know that much about yes. you know so rather than waiting for them to find me maybe I need to do a bit of legwork and reach out to them and yeah. I've interviewed a couple of people on this podcast as a direct result of that reflection ah, is good. actually I need to understand more mm. um, so I, I think for all of us we can yeah but the next generation how do we feed into them and if it's just one person that you touch but they then go on to touch you know yep. helping 500 people then that's uh, that's got to be positive <laughs> ah, definitely yeah. definitely I mean um, uh, you know uh, it has that ripple effect. That's yeah, right. And you, yeah. you might talk to one person, but then they talk to somebody, and so it goes out like that. So, yeah, yeah um, uh, life is full of opportunities. It I, is, I, yeah. I think, um, you know, that's that's important. Never, I mean, sort of never be looking at life sort of from the glass half empty. Look at it as half full, and, mm. and uh, that's important. But, I mean, just to continue my story, I mm. was in um, foreign <laughs> affairs, and I sort of wound up in the defense division, <laughs> and I 
to be honest, I had no no idea and no interest about defence. Quite honestly, I mean, I, I I still wasn't very much orientated to uh, foreign affairs, and I don't know whether it was um, you know somebody thought, hell, we've got the wrong person here, <laughs> or what it was. But anyway, after six months in foreign affairs, I was seconded to treasury, and um, I was in the budget division there for a couple of years, and I really enjoyed that. Mm-hmm. Um, um, but then, to my surprise, um, I got a telephone call asking me to go to Japan. Ah. And um, the reason for that was it was um, Muldoon uh, time, think big, and um, they needed somebody to go to Japan to go around the banks and securities companies to mm-hmm. do the legwork on the um, samurai bond issues and bank loans. So mm. that was that was my job. Yeah. And So um, what year are we talking about, just uh, so we're clear? That, Is this so that was 1978. I see. So that yeah. sort of era. Yeah. Um, and um, uh, what is it? So what, what was your first reaction when you got that phone call saying, we want you to go to Japan? Like, <laughs> <laughs> I was probably pretty ungrateful, to be honest. Right. I thought, you know, because I, I sort of figured You're myself... Working like, on the budget and oh, some Australia, Australia and go and see some cricket. I right. mean, <laughs> I didn't, Japan, I mean, uh, I didn't know anything about it. And um, so there it was. Um, um, and, um, you know, in those days, there was a language aptitude test in foreign affairs, and I was very happy to flunk that totally. I mean, I had no interest at all in mm-hmm. learning a foreign language. I mm-hmm. mean, it, that's where I was in my in my thinking about international affairs. Wow. Um, and um, so uh, because I was seen as a, a hopeless case with language, I was sent straight into the embassy in Tokyo without any language training. Ah. Um, and uh, my job was to interact with... Uh, the Ministry of Finance, the Bank's Securities Company, Bank of Japan. And uh, for me, fortuitously, because I didn't have Japanese, uh, the Japanese were very kind to um, open the doors to their really talented um, uh, people in the international divisions of those um, operations Mm -hmm. who had great English and uh, above that, but were super talented. Um, uh, And so... Um, fortuitously, um, through that, through my own sort of reluctance to um, take a step into sort of uh, foreign language waters, I got introduced to the best. And um, those contacts now, um, 38, 39 years on, are still my very close friends. So, Mm. I mean, um, my friends in Japan have on the same level as my friends in New Zealand in terms mm. of closeness, human contact. Mm. And uh, um, and in, in that time in Japan, I also met my wife-to-be mm-hmm. and nobody in her family spoke any English at all. So I started to think, uh, if I'm going to stay with foreign affairs, I better start to learn Japanese. And if I'm going to stay with foreign affairs, rather than going uh, here, there and everywhere... I just want to be at home and away at the same time. So I just try and make a career between Japan and New Zealand. I see. Um, and um, uh, so that's that's how it was. So when I got back to New Zealand, uh, I tried to learn Japanese. And um, anyway, came back to New Zealand. And um, then I was uh, sent to Solomon Islands mm-hmm. and back to New Zealand again. And um, uh, I sort of 
put up my hand and said I'd like to be reposted to Japan. And since I've done some study on my own, um, I can become a language officer on the cheap for you. So if you give me one year of language training rather than the standard two, I'll get up to a level of um, fluency to be able to do business in Japan. I see. Um, and uh, fortunately, um, they believe me. <laughs> <laughs> and I set the language aptitude test and got a really good result. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, then I had a year at um, uh, the language school in Yokohama, the Foreign Service Institute, American State Department language school in, in Yokohama. Mm -hmm. And it was like learning uh, 20 kanji a day. Mm -hmm. um, but because I uh, enjoy maths, I think the symbolism of kanji, mm -hmm. anyway, it really appeals to me. Mm -hmm. And so in the end, I could recognize, I can't write, but I can recognize about 3,500 kanji. Mm -hmm. um, and um, uh, so that's So your that's language got to be good enough where you could then be more permanently based there and, yeah, and involved yeah. in the actual day-to-day -day yeah. dealing with businesses and other things. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I've yet to meet a New Zealander who is totally fluent in Japanese. Yeah. I, mean, <laughs> I, I think that's sort of like um, some nirvana. I don't know. I, I, know. I don't think. But um, I actually uh, heard something funny. Somebody said the only way that you can become fluent in Japanese is if you're born in Japan. I think that's right. I think that's <laughs> and you right. grow up as a child. Because yeah. as you know, I lived in Japan for five years yeah. and I can speak pretty well. Like yes. I, I could almost have this sort of conversation, yes. but I, I would never say that I was a fluent Japanese speaker right. just right. because of the intricacies around the keigo and yeah. wanting to be polite. And yeah. I just don't feel like I could ever kind of get to that super super fluent level yeah um, yeah yeah i think you're i think you're right i mean i i'm at a stage now that um i if i'm talking with japanese i'd probably prefer to speak in japanese mm. because it it won't be um as good as my english but it will be said in the right way mm. um that it will be it, it'll come across as japanese and um uh I think that you then establish a different level of rapport and mm. um, uh, fortunately uh, for outsiders trying to engage with Japanese, they are incredibly generous mm. to um, the mm. outsider and appreciative of their ability to, or sort of their effort to speak the language. Yeah, so at least making a little effort, right? And definitely. we were both at an event this morning yeah. and you spoke about um, Japan relationship and mm. things and I spoke a little bit about mm. practical tips. Yep. And that was one of the things I said is just there, if you make an effort, yes. it's worth so much. Oh, absolutely. If, if, you, if you can say, hajime mashite, yes. you know, like it's going to make a huge difference to yeah. that relationship. So, yeah. 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 Well, my wife, my wife tells the story that um, when I first met her mother, mm. I, uh, I came away from that uh, meeting, and I, I, and Setsuko's mother was Buddhist, um, and I said to Setsuko, um, uh, "Your your mother um, might be Buddhist, but um, I believe she's a very good Christian as well, and the way that she um, you know lives her life." And apparently, Setsuko said to uh, Setsuko's mother said to Setsuko. Ian's a very good Buddhist. <laughs> so, I mean, I think there, there's um, a level of communication mm. that you can get. Um, mm. um, yeah, that sort of crosses sort of cultural 
cultural barriers that don't need to exist. Yeah, no, I agree with you. So I'd love to talk about the later stages of your career mm. and what you ended up doing. But just before we do that, can you just describe what it, because you've li lived in Japan a long time now, mm. what is it that you love about Japan? Uh, I, I love the um, genuineness of the people. Um, mm -hmm. uh, uh, I think um, from initial contact, people might think that Japanese are very reserved in, 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 mm -hmm. in what they say and hard to perhaps um, get on the same rapport with, but I don't find that at all. I find that they're, they're very genuine. I, I find that they're very loyal. Um, and um, um, they love their country. Um, but they're very respectful of others as well. Mm. Um, uh, I think um, they're similar to New Zealanders in that they're a little bit on their own. I think, um, you know, when there's talk of Asia these days, um, that misses the point. We, we don't talk so much about Europe and try to sort of categorize an English person with a French person and an Italian. We, they're all different. Mm. And... Uh, I, in the same way, Japanese are very different from Chinese, Korean, um, Indonesians, and, and others. So, um, uh, and uh, I like that difference. I like the I like the um, commitment to a trade, and uh, I like the respect that people can get no matter what trade they're doing, so long as they're doing it at a high level. Mm. So. Um, I can enjoy being in a restaurant in Japan, just seeing the way that the chef will go about the preparation of the food, or you know how they'll be so committed to customer service to make sure that you know the customer is really enjoying their stay in mm. in the restaurant, irrespective of how much they're spending or not. Mm. It doesn't make a difference. So, mm. um, uh, I think um, you know you can see that um, in history, um, you know the. Uh, the imperial presence has had some controversial sides, but I mean, the sort of commitment of the people to the emperor is is very impressive mm. too, um, and the respect um, within families. So, in one one um, respect, maybe it seems a little bit formal for uh, New Zealanders, where even uh, my wife's family, she won't. Uh, address her sisters by name it will be always elder sister or younger sister right yeah um but uh you know the way that um japanese come together um on a number of occasions during the year the sort of family bonds um mm. you know if someone passes away there's not only the funeral but there's the after funeral times that the family come together all sort of um generated it was all geared to sort of strength of the family unit i think is a great strength of the country mm. uh, so yeah. um oh, i agree with you there's so much that we can learn as well mm. um, i think because mm. when i first moved there i was 21 yes. so it was a very formative time of my life you yes. know asking those big questions that you asked yes um you know who am I? Yes. Where do I fit in? What yes. do I believe? All those things. Yeah. And for me, I think having lived in Japan, looking back, I realize how much it shaped who I've become in terms of how I relate with people and yeah. not wanting to cause offense. And, yes. you know, just the subtle ways of, um, of being that is just normal in yeah. Japan. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's really good. Yeah. So just in terms of your career, like, I guess, where did you get to within the foreign affairs 
department or you know going to Japan what what ended up being sort of your your highest role within that um, in Japan the high, well, I was an ambassador there from 2007 to two th- halfway through 2012 which was mm-hmm. near enough to six years where normally it's a four-year stint right um, my term was extended for a couple of reasons I mean, one, because um, New Zealand was hosting Rugby World Cup in 2011 and mm. I'd been doing a lot of work with the Japanese companies who sponsor rugby, so it made sense to continue on for that. And then um, we had the two earthquakes, the, the yeah. uh, Christchurch earthquake and the Tohoku earthquake in mm. um, uh, well, Christchurch, February, Tohoku, March 2011, mm. and there was a lot of um, follow-up work from from that yeah. and I it's, mean it's a connection isn't it between Japan and New Zealand like we saw some pictures yeah. today yeah just the size of the two countries yeah. island nations yes very very similar and my parents were here in Christchurch when the earthquake happened uh, I came back to visit them yes I went back to Tokyo because I was living there at that yes. time and was there for the Tohoku earthquake yeah. so yeah. kind of got both countries um, impacted our family which was ironic yeah Yeah. absolutely yeah so you ended up doing that for for till 2012 you said yeah sort of about um, july 2012 yeah um and um part of that uh was following christchurch Mm. um together with uh other new zealanders in tokyo we um uh decided to see what we could do to raise some money for for christchurch reconstruction Mm -hmm. um um, um, but prior to that also I was involved a lot um, uh, um, with the uh, dispatch of uh, the search and rescue team from Japan to try and search for the Japanese children who lost their lives in the CTV building. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, uh, so when I came back from Japan, I could have gone back into foreign affairs, but I thought that's... Um, not really the right move, so I decided to call it a day at that point and find look for some way that I could continue to be involved between Japan and New Zealand, mm. but retain the links with um, with uh, the government sector. And so I left one day, um, and then to my surprise, I was uh, called in by the foreign minister and asked why I was leaving, and in the end, that sort of led me to a contract which I've got now as Special Representative of Japan, which basically works alongside MFAT in Wellington and NZTE and the embassy in Tokyo to sort of do projects in a sort of people-to-people mm-hmm. basis. Um, I have a question for you because I haven't met many ambassadors. Mm. Just from your perspective, what, what does that, what's that like, you know, representing a country as you know, the person who, who's going into meetings or going to a, a, a function or whatever, does it change your frame of mind in terms of how you're interacting with people? Or uh, I believe it. I, I hope it doesn't. I mean, because um, I think they're probably, you know, starting right from the beginning, I think everybody is, has got their own um, character. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, I think there's, uh, you know... Um, there's room for many different types of people uh, to be representing New Zealand, just as there's room for many types of people within mm-hmm. New Zealand. Um, uh, I think uh, integrity is an absolute must, mm-hmm. um, um, and and representing the country honestly, uh, which sometimes means 
you have to put your own personal um, uh, beliefs to one side. Mm-hmm. Um, um, but uh, it is a responsibility. I remember uh, after the earthquake in Christchurch and I was called in to see the Japanese foreign minister, Mr. Maikawa, at that stage, because uh, he would have been worried about the Japanese children, of course, but more, more generally just about the disaster that was unfolding in Christchurch. And um, on the way in, uh, I telephoned in the car from the car to um, Wellington and spoke with Martin Weavers, who was um, uh, head of the prime minister's office. And I said, look, I'm called in from by Mr. Maikawa. Um, uh, I suspect he'll ask me what can Japan do um, and um, from you know New Zealand's perspective uh, what is the need there on the ground and, and Martin said well it would be really helpful if they could send a search and rescue team um, and uh, so um, when I went to uh, see Mr Maikawa I mean, um, television cameras were there and uh, uh, as I expected, he said to me, um, what can we do? And um, I said, well, uh, it would be fantastic if you could send a search and rescue team. That would be really helpful, particularly in the effort to try and engage with the Japanese who are trapped in the CTV building. And he said to me, is that an official request? And I was able to say, yes, it is an official request. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that um, search and rescue team left before lunch the next day. Hmm. And uh, I remember uh, my Kawa-san said to me, uh, you know, um, friend in need is a friend indeed, we'll be there. Hmm. And so those, that was very special that you could feel, or I could feel that I'd brought New Zealand together in a very good way, a hmm. uh, constructive way. And I think uh, uh, that's really the core role for an ambassador. Mm-hmm. And um, the interesting thing for an ambassador is that um, uh, uh, formally, the letter of appointment is from the Governor General of New Zealand. So you're representing the state of New Zealand. And you are actually day to day engaging on behalf of the government, but you're representing the state of New Zealand. Mm. And I think that is a pretty special position to be in. And it's uh, um, it um, uh, it gives. Um, great um, authority in one respect, but it brings uh, great responsibilities as well. So I think, you know, um, don't get carried away with your own importance. That would be a disaster. (laughs) Mm. I just remember it's, you know, the state of New Zealand that you're representing and what the state of New Zealand counts for, what's what's of value to the state of New Zealand, Mm -hmm. um, then you're doing the job. Um, I think it's uh, being ambassador is not a job for anyone, and it's not necessarily. Um, I think for me it was a, a great job, but I can imagine for a scientist, for example, who wanted to become absolutely the world expert in I don't know, microbiology or something, or um, uh, an engineer doing something, or a doctor, or doesn't matter what profession you're in, um, if it gives you the um, chance to um, reach your full potential then go for it. Mm. That's that's the sort of career you should be in. So mm. um, uh, I think uh, being ambassador is a great job. Um, uh, not for everybody, but uh, it's not saying it's a special group of people who are ambassadors. It's just that 
uh, being an ambassador requires certain sort of skill set, a certain personality. Other jobs require different attributes. Mm. Um, and you know, uh, being ambassador was always sort of a great reassurance if we were, if there was a trade matter that was particularly technical or something about agriculture or immigration, whatever, if you had the experts there who could provide that input, mm -hmm. that was so much better. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Yeah, I just like to talk with people who've done different careers, and I've never really interviewed an ambassador or someone who'd done that. So, yeah, yeah that's really helpful to hear. And I know you're involved in the Japan New Zealand Business Council mm. as well. Some of the people who are listening won't know what that is, but do you mind just giving a really brief overview about that? Yeah. And um, what we'll do is in the show notes, we'll put links to things oh, good. so people can click and they can find out more. But oh, maybe just briefly sort of what it is and any upcoming events like later in the year. Sure. Um, the Japan New Zealand Business Council... Um, began in the early 1970s. Um, uh, prior to that, New Zealand had pretty much been linked to the UK. Mm. Uh, but when um, Britain joined the European community, our special access um, began to be phased out. And so we needed to look elsewhere for um, other trade partners. Mm. And at that stage also, Japan was looking to build international linkages. and. At a, a conference, um, a New Zealand business leader and a Japanese came together and um, they said, um, you know, we don't seem to know each other and don't seem to be doing much business. Let's try to find some way of bringing the two business communities together. And mm. that was the start of the Business Council. Mm. Um, and uh, so for a long time, the Business Council was really a chance for self-introductions by New Zealand and Japanese business. So you're running events from time to time, yep. mainly in Auckland, but elsewhere around the yeah, country as exactly. well. And then you have a event, is it every year? Yep. In one in Japan and then in New Zealand. And, yep. and we were both at one actually in Osaka That's right. <laughs> That's right. uh, two years ago now. Yep. So um, what's that about? And Yeah, look, I mean, what, what we've done I mean, Japan now, uh, with the leadership of Prime Minister Abe, mm -hmm. we now have a, a free trade agreement with Japan. It's mm -hmm. not a bilateral free trade agreement. It's mm -hmm. a regional um, a plurilateral grouping, the, the CPTPP, mm -hmm. uh, Trans-Pacific Partnership Agreement. Um, so, look, that's provided um, uh, much better access to the Japanese market. Mm -hmm. um, I think there's a whole new uh, strand to the the. Uh, business between Japan and New Zealand where it used to be from Japan cars and electronic goods and from New Zealand basically primary produce there's now going to be uh, development towards um, value added um, agriculture, horticulture, forestry um, that uses renewable energy mm -hmm. um, and it's driven by uh, knowledge and creativity mm -hmm. and there is New, Ze New Zealand and Japan are great partners with Japan who was such a record for quality control mm. so I think uh, where we used to say Japan and New Zealand are natural partners with Japan sort of the manufacturing New Zealand the primary production I think we're still natural partners with that manufacturing and primary production plus sort of knowledge uh, creativity yeah. uh, taking um uh, production up the value chain and so on. So that's where we want to position the Business Council to help form those uh, connections that then can inform MFAT's work and NZT's work. Um, mm. Because in, in Japan, just relationships are so key. Mm. If, if, you don't, if you need to have uh, relationships, personal linkages, um, and that can take five, ten years. Uh, it's, mm. You can't rush it. Um, uh, but once you've got it there, 
uh, Japan is there for the long term. Mm. They're not just uh, in quick merger and acquisition, sell off, but take the profit. They're there to reinvest, to build a human relationship mm. as well as the business. So, um, uh, and then, you know, on top of that, there's uh, the differences which um, uh, create the interest between Japan and New Zealand, the different cultures, different history and so on, but then the similarities in business mm. uh, practice and um, uh, adherence to human rights, to um, the importance of the multilateral system, etc., etc. Mm. So, and one of the things in the session this morning, people I, I picked up on talking just about Maori culture as mm. well. Mm. That there's actually lots of synergies there between Absolutely. the ways that Japanese culture operates and Maori culture, which I think Te Ao Maori has a lot to teach us. So yeah. that was quite interesting to me, yeah. um, some, some of the observations that people were making. Yeah. So what we'll do is in the show notes, we'll put some links, and okay. then if people want to know more, Terrific. they can cook it. Um, I need to get you to the airport, so <laughs> I think we should finish up. Okay. Well, um, just, just to say that yeah. the um, Japan New Zealand Business Council, the website is uh, jnzbc. Dot com. Yeah, what we'll do is yeah, we'll put the links in. But I just want to thank you so much for coming in and having Pleasure. a chat. It's been really interesting. And just hearing your life history, even just reflecting on your childhood, mm. and then to become the ambassador to Japan, you know, it's quite a contrast when you think about growing up in Hamilton yeah. and seeing TV for the first time, you know. Yeah. Um, it, it's been really interesting to hear your story. And then also just how, how a life weaves together, you know, that that an injury causes you to start studying more and then you go study mathematics and get into economics yes. and then like it's quite yeah that's why I love doing these podcasts is because I learn a lot from the from the guests yeah. so I just want to say thanks so much for oh, coming pleasure. on the show pleasure yeah. thank you thanks for the opportunity no problem it's been good well I hope you enjoyed that interview with Ian I know for me I really enjoyed it because as you could tell we both had a love of Japan and hearing about his life story and what led him to become an ambassador of New Zealand, I thought it was really fascinating. I hope you enjoyed it, and if you did, consider leaving a rating or review, maybe share this with a friend, and hit subscribe so you don't miss out on future upcoming episodes. The aim here is to build up a catalog of stories, and there's more than a hundred now of people who are doing interesting and inspiring things in our world. I'd really appreciate your help to get the word out about the podcast so that more people can find out about it because I think it is doing things a little bit differently from traditional media. Until next time.